0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org.
1: So thank you. I'm happy to be back here. Uh, I was looking at the uh, list of talks that I've given in the past here uh, on audiodharma, which is an excellent resource, so thanks to all who provide that. And I saw the first time I came here to give a talk was 2007. And it was interesting to go back through the list of topics that uh, over the years, the beginning were kind of more classical ones about perception and um, four elements and the Brahma Viharas. And then had a period where I talked about the Dharma of sports and Dharma and magic and Harry Potter and uh, the internet and resurrection and um, time travel And then the Dharma of um, daily life and big box stores, shopping in big box stores (laughs) and stuff. And so then, uh, yeah, here I am today. And so in reflecting on this, you know, it's always interesting to have a year-end reflection to, it's like, oh, what to make of this trajectory of uh, over 11 years of coming here. But it's a little bit what I want to talk to you about, something along these lines and the... uh, Reflections about how you look at your practice you know sometimes in the end of the year it 's time to reflect and renew and consider like well what's my relationship to uh, this or that? What are my uh, aspirations So uh, this talk is thirteen ways of looking at Dharma practice so uh, in any kind of activity, probably the way that you entered it. Uh, Has served you uh, for some time, but then as you go on, your relationship has to change to that. And this could be true of anything. It could be true of your uh, physical life, like your your exercise life. So maybe when you were younger, you played a lot of vigorous team sports, and then as you get older, maybe you mellow out a little bit, or you don't have as much time, or your body changes, and then you start doing uh, different kinds of activities. Uh, and it's helpful to stay connected and alive with any activity, you know, any activity, any relationship, and even, you know, in long-term relationships, uh, with anyone. So with a spouse or with a friend or with a child, like we have to in some way keep renewing our relationship. Like we have to see who is this person now and what's the best way to relate to them. So you can't relate to, uh, a uh, 16-year-old like they were a 4-year-old, or it won't work so well, or they'll let you know that that's not working so well, right? So similarly, there's a way in which for many people, you know, we enter uh, dharma, we enter meditation practice uh, for some reasons with some causes, and it's helpful to uh, kind of renew what is my relationship to this path to practice uh, in some ways. I think it's a, a, healthy, a healthy thing to do, and it's helpful for our continued development, Otherwise, there tends to be periods in which we feel a little bit lost, like kind of coasting or it's not alive or, you know, it feels like um, stale. So I want to suggest some different ways that you can consider uh, your relationship to dharma practice. And uh, even though I'm saying this is 13 ways of looking at dharma practice, which is a little bit of a nod to the poem, 13 ways of looking at a blackbird, but it's not the definitive list. So at the end, you know, you can tell me if you have other ones that are actually more accurately reflecting your uh, relationship in some ways. So let's begin. <laughs> so one way of looking at practice sometimes, and I'll say Dharma practice, but in the moment I'm talking about the meditation practice itself, is as a period of rest. So, you know, you have a busy life, you're running around, doing many things, working, traveling, uh, being active, and it can be a means of rest just to give yourself that period of half an hour, an hour, even 15 minutes of just sitting, not being a human doing, but just a human being. And sometimes you can feel that in the body and the system, how uh, the momentum of your energy continues, right? Right. And sometimes it feels like almost like a, there's a car that, uh, not an electric car, but a like, regular <laughs> gas car. You know, when it stops at a stoplight sometimes, it still is like sort of agitating a little bit, right? So you can feel that sometimes if you sit yeah, after a busy day, it's just like agitating a little bit like this. But it's good. You know, there's a way in which it is actually very restful for the body, for the mind. Uh, so that's one sort of motivation or way of looking at it, restful. Also, it's helpful to remember that the meditation practice is one part of the Eightfold Path. And I know that there's an Eightfold Path uh, class going on here, which I was happy to hear about uh, from Bruni. So the meditation component is, or you could say maybe it's three or four parts of the Eightfold Path, but uh, some of the components there, but there are also other components uh, of Dharma Path um, that are not in the meditation practice. So it's a helpful aspect to attend to Um, but not the entirety of the path. So I think that's helpful to recognize also because uh, sometimes people go through periods in which they sit meditation regularly and then some periods in which they don't. And then they feel like, ah, you know, sort of kind of guilty about it and like, I know I should be doing this, but I'm not doing this. And I think it's always helpful to consider, just try to understand, you know, causality, like, okay, what's going on in my life? You know, is it I feel really tired? Is it that I've lost motivation? Uh, you know, just uh, try and understand what's going on there, but also in some ways, to me, as long as you're engaged actively at some place in this eightfold path, then it's good. So, you know, maybe at some point, like you have uh, small children or baby, and uh, it's difficult uh, to have the wakefulness to uh, sit regularly, for example, one of the things. But uh, you can reflect very well on sila, you know, on ethics, on integrity and make that a very active part of your practice right, uh, in your daily life. So uh, considering it one part of the Eightfold Path, or at least uh, some components of the Eightfold Path, is another uh, way of looking at the practice. Uh, okay, so another one that's a common one uh, is the stress reduction one, right? So as in the title of MBSR, stress reduction. Uh, later, I will suggest a way that is the opposite of this. But for now, we will say, okay, so uh, stress reduction. So a lot of people come to Dharma practice from some deep suffering, right? There's been some suffering in life, whether it's a loss of a job or a loved one or a breakup or physical uh, pain, diagnosis of something, Uh, difficulty that's cast us into kind of an existential search for meaning and understanding and then learning about the buddhist teachings and as a component of that learning meditation practice um, can be a helpful way to de-stress right Uh, to let go of stress that we otherwise would hold so that's a legitimate um, perspective of looking at dharma practice now, some of you might have gone on uh, retreats before, a day-long retreat or a week-long retreat at the uh, Insight Retreat Center that you have here or some places else, Spirit Rock. Sometimes people come back from retreat and even though they thought, I'll go in retreat and it'll really like turbocharge my meditation practice, like, you know, I've spent all day meditating, so of course I'll come back and I'll be so good to go for my practice for the rest of the year, just coast on that, you know. And then sometimes people come back and they find themselves extremely demotivated because, you know, they have this beautiful samadhi, concentration from the retreat. And then they come back to sit and suddenly it's like, wow, it's just like taking out the garbage, you know, in my like, daily practice. I sit, and I'm like rehashing the conversations from work that day and the fight I had with this guy in the store. And, you know, it doesn't feel as like profound and sacred and beautiful as when on retreat, you know. Uh, so... I remember one of my teachers uh, saying to me, like, uh, yeah, sometimes it feels like taking out the garbage, but it's good to take out the garbage. So <laughs> so still do it. So look at, you know, your attachment to having it be a certain way. And the conditions of retreat are conducive to having a lot of samadhi, you know, or to having more samadhi than you would in your daily life, having more collectedness and calm. And so then lawfully, you know, things play out that your meditation practice Uh, is experienced in one way Um, and so then you know if you find that to be the case you could actually do a little reflection in your daily life like well what aspects of my life are conducive to samadhi or less conducive you know like we're always actually cultivating something whether or not we're officially meditating we're cultivating these qualities of mind so am i trying to multitask all the time right? Like watch TV while I do my email, while I'm eating dinner and, you know, like pulled in many different directions. And so then lawfully, right, that actually conditions the mind to be more distracted, right? Or are we allowing ourselves the conditions that would allow ourselves to settle more and to be more one-pointed, to more collected, you know, more focused? So yeah, it could be like taking out the garbage, um, but that's still good, so... Uh, So mental fitness, another perspective. So uh, sometimes um, one perspective on this is that just like there's ways of developing physical fitness and it's good to do some kind of exercise, it develops muscle tone and strength and uh, it develops uh, stamina, as we're doing uh, dharma practice, we're actually developing mental qualities. And you might be developing those mental qualities other times in your life, but we're more intensively doing that during practice. Um, So particularly mindfulness, uh, concentration, equanimity, calm. We're developing also the energy and motivation. We're developing um, wisdom. We're developing uh, joy, actually, too. Uh, So many different qualities, investigation. Uh, So mental fitness. So we're actually developing our mind in many different ways, mind and heart, you could say, Um, that's beneficial. And this is one that I think has caught on a little bit in um, kind of uh, mainstream uh, of meditation as uh, mental fitness and uh, sort of beneficial health advantage. Uh, and that's also true. So as I say all these things, if one of them sparks you, then that's good, right? So if that's motivating to you, then great. You know, even if next week you drop it and are to another one, right? So uh, if mental fitness is uh, motivating to you, that's good. Okay, another way uh, looking at dharma practice is uh, related to the word sati, uh, which I know is the title of the center here, the study center, right? Sati center, uh, which sometimes translated as mindfulness, but also translated as remembering. So practice as remembering. And it could be remembering, you know, in the way that mindfulness is like remembering, like knowing what is happening right in in that way but also there's a way in which it could be considered remembering as in uh you know the members of your body could be considered like your limbs and you're sort of like reassembling (laughs) reassembling the dismembered mental energy physical energy uh, that gets dispersed a lot you know during the day like reassembling in some ways like allowing selves to like come back together in some healthy format and then in some ways as that remembering happens like allowing the kinks to get worked out. It also can be a remembering, like a remembering what's important to you, you know, remembering what you care about, Uh, remembering your own good heart, Uh, remembering your vows to be present uh, or to treat others kindly. So in that way, it also is allowing us to settle into a deeper sensitivity, you know, like a A greater level of sensitivity than we might have when we're super busy and running around and uh, very active. And it's possible to be sensitive during those times too, but it can help to have these periods of like remembering that, you know, what it feels like, uh, what it's like to be connected in that way. Another way of looking at Dharma practice uh, for those who are more on the inquiry tip, is as a lab. So it's like laboratory time or laboratory time in which you can experiment with and understand what's true about who I am, about how suffering is created, uh, about how this thing that I call life uh, seems to take take vision. So one of the uh, great innovations of the Buddha, I think, is the offering of these techniques of practice in which we can directly explore questions about uh, who am I, what's true about life, what's true about existence, what's true about what seems to be reality, Um, through our own direct experience using the tools of mindfulness, um, using the tools of cultivating uh, samadhi and then applying that to understanding directly what's true. So it's like a lab in which we get to see like, oh, how suffering gets created like oh look I'm sitting here, just breathing. Some sound happens. The sound has come and gone. But now oh look the mind is like all cranky about it for the next twenty five minutes. <laughs> oh maybe it wasn't the sound that was the problem because the sound's already gone. Like oh wow maybe the suffering's in the mind, you know. So we get to see that kind of thing, and then uh, as we learn about that, we can apply that and see that in other areas of our life too. You know what's true about where we point the finger for the cause of suffering. Does that really make sense? So now we'll go uh, opposite to the stress reduction. <laughs> this one may seem less motivating, but uh, one way of looking at Dharma practice, in some ways, is a stress induction. <laughs> so meaning like um, you're actually uh, you know, sitting there and it's very courageous to take the, the seat, even for whatever time, 10 minutes, half an hour, an hour, whatever time. And in some ways, we're taking a vow like during this period of time, allow me to be present with whatever arises in the body and mind. So I take this vow to be present, to see things as they are, as clearly as I can, to be as honest with myself about what's happening, to be as clear, as courageous. Now, so most of the time in regular life, something comes up we don't like. Physical body, we squirm, right? Even unconsciously, like we shift our position. Uh, and you can notice, even now, if if you're not in like official meditation position, you know, something happens a little bit, like you itch it, this, that, you know, nothing unethical about itching or something like that but uh, you know notice how like oh yeah there's a way in which we're constantly running from unpleasant experience and then something pleasant happens like we want to keep that we want that to stay you know so in this kind of stress induction way we're taking on a discipline you know it is a discipline and then we see what arises in the mind like i want to go get something to eat Uh, i'm restless i'm sleepy i don't like what's happening in my body I don't like this emotion. You know, all this stuff comes up. And so we're allowing this stuff to arise, which develops a deep, greater understanding and capacity to be present, right? Not just in the practice, but in our life. But we are actually sort of like um, cultivating the, the space to courageously see everything that comes up. And sometimes people will start to think, in the middle of practice, like doubt will arise. Well, why should I sit with this? Like, memories are coming up that's difficult. Physical pain's coming up. I could totally move, right? Like, I could get up and leave. Or, yeah, I'm hungry. I'm bored. Yeah, why not go watch TV or go get a snack, right? So, um, one of my favorite quotes about um, practice is from Bruce Lee, the martial artist. He says, uh, Under duress, we do not rise to the level of our expectations, but we fall to the level of our practice. So... Yeah, maybe you could get up and squirm right now, but, yeah, what happens when something is thrown at you by life that you can't squirm away from? You know, and that happens, right? Uh, When difficulty shows up, when challenges show up in personal life and physical health, right, in the political realm, everything, you know, uh, then it's not under your control, clearly, to change that. Then how do you relate to that? Have you had practice in relating gracefully, in relating wisely uh, to challenges that arise? So our dharma practice uh, can help us with uh, learning to live wisely, right? Uh, Little by little, we develop our capacity. Uh, Realignment, another way of looking at practice. So in this realignment, I mean, like, um, uh, sometimes this happens with wheels, right? Like bicycle wheels or car wheels. Like they start to get a little bit like wobbly, like off center and um, with bicycle wheels um, you know they put them on a little uh, holder and spin it around and the holder has two small uh, prongs like this and then you can see where it's scraping the prong like where it's like little pulled and then you can tweak it with a little spoke adjuster thingy and then you spin it more tweak spin it more tweak like this a long time ago i worked on a bike shop so that's how i know this kind of thing i was very into like cycling so um you develop this uh realignment kind of thing and there's a way in which i think through the experience of the suffering through the stress induction in some ways um the realignment can happen you know uh the development of wisdom can happen um through seeing uh seeing through the ways in which we erroneously relate to life you could say and for me this is one of the um aspects of even just holding like what is dharma overall that uh can be interesting, helpful. It's like one of the translations of dharma is dharma is nature. So it's the truth of the way things are. You know. So in some ways, we could say like, well, our practice is not uh, you know, developing some esoteric thing, but it's actually allowing ourselves more and more to recognize ourselves, our experience, everything as part of nature. So relaxing into that. And the ways in which we suffer are ways in which we kind of clutch up against that. know we like resist that we don't see it and so then we're like uh, suffering comes from this kind of like tensing up unnecessarily against nature so uh, okay now now we're number ten buying a lottery ticket for awakening (laughs) So <laughs> now some people you know we relate to awakening or not awakening in many different ways, like what does that mean? Or, you know we could say that uh, the conditions for waking up uh, include the cultivation of all these mental factors, and then it seems like, or it can seem like um, the actual awakening is a little bit of like a laundry draw, like, "Oh, how does that happen? when's the components? But um, as the saying goes, you have to be present to win, <laughs> so uh, doing your practice allows you to uh, have the, the possibility of being present at the drawing, so <laughs> and buying the lottery ticket for awakening, right? So yeah, like, uh, you know, sometimes you could double up, yeah, do two times a day, that gives you like two more uh, <laughs> tickets, so, you know, why not? It's better that way. So now I'll shift into some, some that's um, maybe uh, if you 've gone through some of these and you know there 's a different relationship to Dharma or uh, practice a little bit more on the um, yeah devotional mystical side, maybe so one is actually as devotional practice, you know Dharma practice as devotional practice, so once you 've developed some understanding about uh, the Dharma as actually having some truth to it. And as your life starts to ground more and more in this truth in nature, then there's a way in which the Dharma practice can be a moment of devotional practice, you know, a period of actually uh, dedicating yourself and appreciation. So in this way, uh, during our period of practice, we're actually uh, going for true refuge, you know, and we can notice the ways in which other times in life we might be, again, like sort of squirming away and the habitual tendency of the unawakened mind is to seek pleasure, uh, s- look for different things that may not actually serve us to be the things that will make us happy. So seeking refuge in, you know, whatever it is, like, oh, if I only get this job or get this status or, you know, get this uh, haircut or, you know, make it into this school or, you know, whatever it is, lose this weight, you know, whatever things that we have, sort of different, like, erroneous uh, ideas of like then I will finally be happy forever you know then everything will be fine right so those I'll suggest are uh, you know not true refuges because everything changes right so any of those things haircut job <laughs> you know whatever are sort of temporary, um temporary manifestations here in samsara uh, so we can't actually rely on them they certainly can bring like uh, some happiness temporarily but Immediately as they arise, they're already changing. So kind of baked into them uh, is some instability. So a Dharma practice as a devotional practice and as a way of going for true refuge. You're reminding yourself of that, deepening your connection to that. And for some, it's actually devotion also to the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, through the three refuges, uh, if that means something to you. You can say more about that if uh, you want also. So, relatedly, uh, a twelfth way you could look at your Dharma practice is as a sacred ritual. And, you know, in some ways in uh, this tradition, insight meditation, uh, you know, the school, it's like relatively uh, bare bones. So, it's not like there's too much ritual besides the sort of bow at the end kind of thing, right? So, in some traditions of Buddhism, there's a lot of like chanting and, you know, clicking of blocks and postures and you know different outfits like you put on a certain robe to enter the temple and this kind of thing Um, and here it's like a little bit more regular seeming and yet still we can relate to that in some ways like a sacred ritual so this period of your day in which you go to practice is like a beautiful time of in some ways like tending this spark you know or tending a flame you know some flame that uh, it's helpful to nurture and it's this this flame you could you could relate to different ways of of freedom of truth of dharma you know so we want to like feed that like put kindling blow on it you know just really like tend the sacred fire within us so it can feel like a ritual you know if we approach it like that um, and so this is I you know I was saying some of these might contradict each other so this is different than the sort of like going to the mental fitness gym <laughs> I mean you could relate to going to the gym also like a sacred ritual too but like um, in this way it 's like oh there 's something like like beautiful and in some ways like in another dimension about what i 'm doing here so sometimes that can be very um, motivating and helpful to remember that um, if you 've been touched in some way right that that makes sense to you and if so, some of the things you could do to honor that are uh, to see what makes sense for you you know ritually to enhance your practice so for some people that 's like yeah, I would actually like to make some small altar, you know. And it could be whatever is meaningful for you. So you can have a statue of the Buddha. You could have something from nature. You could have pictures of the, the teachers who inspire you. Um, or, yeah, something that, that reminds you of this kind of spark, you know, the spark in you that you want to sort of nurture. So you can consider when you're, when you're going into practice, you're blowing on the ember, like you know, if you're tending a fire, there's a little spark that helps it to come alive like that. So in some ways, even as you're sitting there and um, being with your breath, you can even feel like, oh yeah, the breath, it's like blowing. As I'm being with the breath, each breath is like blowing on that ember, so staying connected as, as closely as I can with that. So this is like also uh, you know, nurturing what is beautiful within you, you know, nurturing what is, is there. And, um, in one point I was traveling to um, teach at IMS in the East Coast. And I was in New York before then. So in traveling from New York to IMS, I was going to get a bus. Uh, and on the way to the bus, the subway shut down in New York, which is kind of a very unusual, right? And so I was kind of late to the bus and this and that. So later I found out that um, the reason that the subway shut down that day is because uh, there was some kittens that got loose on the uh, subway tracks and someone saw them and called it into the MTA. And so they shut down the subway to try to save the kittens because like, there's one, uh, you know, I guess, electrified rail or something like that. So, the story that came up about this later, so they did they did find the kittens uh, they saved them is you know this big burly MTA guy with a small kitten like this you know <laughs> that he saved, he was like, "Oh, yeah, you know I saw the kitten he was going through the tunnel, and then you know I went and I got it and uh, wow i wouldn 't have thought about that in New York that that 's <laughs> <you know, laughs> that what they would do to save the kittens so it 's very sweet, and you could think like, well, what if I related to myself and my practice like this too like there 's something beautiful that 's lost inside me you know." <laughs> So your practice every time is like, oh, wow, let, let me try and find the kittens. Like <laughs> like find the beautiful qualities like within, you know, connect with and um, allow myself to, uh, yeah, to, to, I don't know if it has to be like save or, you know, like a where's Waldo thing, but so, sort of like a connecting with the beautiful qualities that get lost, you know, amid the busyness or amid stress or, um, yeah, the brutality of the world too, you know allowing yourself to to meet with that. And as you meet with that, then um, we cultivate that, we nurture that. So another way of relating to it, and I realize I'm shifting metaphors very quickly. So, (laughs) yeah, flame to kittens to now. Now we're going to to garden, okay, so garden, right? So um, often we use these words like cultivating, you know, cultivating this, cultivating these qualities. And um, this metaphor of gardening, you know, is like, okay, bring the conditions together for the growth of... Uh, something and in gardening, and if you've had a garden like it 's not totally under your control what happens you know with your garden. You do what you can to make the soil good and to water it and to put fertilizer and provide the proper sunlight or uh, dim light or whatever, but then you know there 's some aspect of organic life that uh, is doing its thing, you know, so you can be supporting the conditions as best you can, but it 's good to recognize like yeah it 's not in my control when this thing blooms, how it blooms, you know, all this stuff, right? Uh, so I've had various adventures with um, gardening uh, over my life. Um, at one point I lived in uh, Massachusetts, and I think it was during a summer when I had, um, I had, like, mono, I think. So I, I was, like, sick for a long time, and then I started to get a little bit better, and I had just enough energy to get interested in something very small, So I got interested in gardening and um, started growing uh, like tiny seedlings in little, uh, like basically any little empty cups that uh, (laughs) we had in our house. And then I was living in a a house with a bunch of friends. We decided we're going to make a garden, uh, but we didn't know about the soil, you know, how the soil is. So then um, you could send a sample away to the uh, UMass Agriculture School, and then they would analyze it and tell you, like if there's lead in the soil you shouldn't you know plant things there or if it's okay or also like if you should add things and things like that so we got back this recipe basically for what we should add to our soil and it was all this stuff that I hadn't had heard of too it was like mealy stuff and fertilizer and i think even like dried blood or something and like manure and you know but so we went dutifully and like got the stuff i think my roommates got the stuff and then you know we put it together and then we planted a whole bunch of stuff and then you know just watered it and waited and amazingly it was a beautiful garden like all this stuff totally thrived upon uh like following the recipe you know uh which we had never had before in that that yard and um it was inspiring to me it's like yeah we create the conditions do the best we can or sort of follow follow the recipe you know with the practice here and then see the beauty uh, springing forth you know allow the beauty to spring forth as it does in its own time right? and this is what happened in the garden too like different things came at different times you know and some things came later and we thought like oh nothing's gonna happen and then you know after a while it came right So it takes like this with your practice. You know, there's long periods of time when it's like, oh, nothing's happening, nothing's happening, nothing's happening, (laughs) right? (laughs) So just continue to water, you know, continue to put the conditions together. Even if you don't know what's happening, something could be happening, right? And that's all you're asked to do, really. Uh, Continue cultivating in that way or right, I might have gone beyond 13 now. As I've gone on, more things occur to me. So the last one I'll say, and then we'll open up a little bit, is um, resting and not knowing. So you could relate to your practice as uh, a practice in resting and not knowing. And this is actually true. You know, even beyond all the techniques and the understandings and, you know, all the lists and all that stuff, there's a way in which just sitting and being present... For all of us, that's what we're doing. Resting with not knowing and practicing being comfortable with that not knowing in some ways. And noticing when the mind wants to know. Noticing when we want to come back to like, oh, I do know, I know who I am, I know what this breath is gonna feel like, I know what this next thought is, I know this. And then just remember this, resting and not knowing. Even though you think you know what's gonna happen, you don't actually know what's gonna happen, right? And so this is true broadly in life. Like anything can happen at any moment. You know, we don't know what's going to happen politically. We don't know what's going to happen with our health. We don't know what's going to happen with our weather. We don't know what's going to happen with our family, you know. And this is dukkha. You know, this is difficult. It's, it's hard for us that this is actually true. You know, this, it's very poignant. We would like to be able to protect ourselves and those we love, and yet we don't know everything that's going to happen. So practicing this resting and not knowing is a very profound and helpful practice to do both for ourselves and for others. And in some ways, the more that we're able to practice and acclimatize and mature, I would say even, uh, into being able to be present with a spacious, kind awareness in this way, then that resiliency of that practice can serve us as we step out of our formal practice into relating to people, uh, into relating to uh, life in different ways. So, uh, 13 or more ways of looking at Dharma practice. (laughs) Um, I hope that something there was of benefit for you. Um, And if not, you could reflect like, well, what is the way that I relate to my Dharma practice now? Or have I lost track, you know? Uh, Am I a little bit on like, uh, yeah... I know it's going to happen. I'll just do it sometimes, you know. Like, what's going on with that? Um, so, if there's something that's intriguing to you, try it on. You know, even just try it on for a week or a month or something, and then see how that is. Um, yeah, all for the fourth of the the cause of uh, onward leading. Yeah, onward leading for all of us to complete liberation of the heart and mind. So, see if anyone has any questions, comments. Um, if you want to share some way that you relate to practice that wasn't mentioned also I'm happy to hear that and I think we have mics too it's been a very long time since I've been here Um, uh, can folks hear me and it's my my, my father's birthday. Oh, good! Yeah. Happy birthday, Dad. And um, just on your very first point of checking in of what it means to you now, your relationship to it now, and what it meant to you before, I feel a sincere amount of longing <laughs> mm. to get back to what it was before. Mm. And I don't know if that's misplaced. What was it before? More central. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in, in, in some ways, like, I mean, I appreciate your recognizing that and even in feeling that longing, right? Like um, just being in touch with sort of the, the tenderness of that um, is beautiful. But at the same time, in some ways, like any longing for like how it was before, you know, is sort of like, oh, I wish I could be an athlete like I was in high school. I wish I could have the relationship to my wife when we were newlyweds or, you know, like anything like that. Is like appreciate what that was, but also stay open because something even more amazing could be here now, you know, that's different and that's actually more appropriate for kind of the stage that we're in now. Like it could still become central again, but there's a way in which like we have to keep that alive. You know, you have to see like, well, what does that mean now for me? You know, what's important to me now? Like I was saying, like in the beginning, sometimes people have this just are just like drowning and suffering. You know, it's like throw me a life preserver. And so then they get it and then they get a little bit more buoyancy. Right. And so then it's like, oh, I'm not quite as desperate as I was before. Right. (laughs) But so now what? Now I'm just kind of bobbing along. So then it's like, oh, okay. well, what what is what does it mean now? Like what's interesting to me now? And sometimes it means like. Um, actually relating to the cultivation of positive qualities, not as much like the uh, desperate need to get rid of suffering, you know. Uh, And in that way, that can be very inspiring also and central. You know, it's like, what is my life about? So I appreciate, for example, in um, Islam, um, people who are devout practitioners, uh, like five times a day, right, will hit the ground, roll out the mat, hit the ground, aim towards Mecca, you know, and do prayers. And I've seen people do this in like, on the road in san francisco you know park the car by the side and like roll out the prayer mat you know which is very courageous in this day and age also uh so and I, i admire that you know it's like wow what if five times a day like we stopped and real realigned ourselves reminded ourselves of what is important to us and even how that is articulated could be different at different times it could be like living with compassion you know it could be living with presence it could be um cultivating uh, collectedness you know there could be a variety of things so in some ways like keeping alive in what way it is central um, it could be central again but in a different way that's actually like more relevant to how it is now so I think even just engaging with the question is great you know and seeing like well what's yeah what's here what's yeah thank you
0: so um, thank you uh, this talk. Um, I love your uh, humor, your spirit, your uh, plain everyday language. Um, that's all great. I wanted to share uh, an experience I had. Uh, my brother died recently, mm-hmm. and sitting with someone who's dying is an incredibly profound experience, and one of um, life rearranging, actually. Sure. Um, and well, there are lots of things I could say about it. I think the most the, the relevant thing is that it became clear to me how my Buddhist practice was helpful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In a way that it hadn't been that clear before because mm-hmm. I had a certain um, level of um, stability. Right. Equanimity. Yeah. Uh, whereas I could see other people were not in that same place with me. So, yeah. Um, uh so it, I was just immensely grateful yeah. for what I didn't even know I had learned.
1: Yeah, yeah. great. Thanks. Thank you.
0: Yeah, that training for when the, the
1: period of duress comes up and then your practice serves you, and I've seen that myself over and over too. Yeah. All right, so I think that I'm at time now, so I should uh, free you from... Uh, <laughs> The balance here but yeah play with this a little bit for yourself you know what's my relationship to practice i invite you as we go into this solstice period this you know coming to the shortest day of the year and then we're going to bounce back out again to the days getting longer Uh, what's my relationship to my practice and how can i keep this uh, alive as i go into the new year yeah Uh, so yeah thank you so much for your attention